Hi everyone, this is Kevin Sykes bringing you another story from the American frontier at 1001 Stories from the Old West. Here you'll find stories about law keepers and lawbreakers, Indian fighters, prospectors, newspaper men, and others written often by the men who lived during those times and others who wrote about it later. It was a wild time in what Congressman Davy Crockett called this britches bustin' country and an important time in American history. We hope you enjoy tonight's story. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories from the Old West. Today, we will be returning to Norman B. Woods' Lives of the Great Indian Chiefs. We had previously read the heartbreaking story of Chief Joseph and his Nez Perce. Well, today we will read his rendering of Quana Parker, head chief of the Comanches. And this story, as you'll see, has a decidedly happier ending than that of Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce. So, without further ado, Quana Parker, head chief of the Comanches. Up to this point, we have refrained from writing the biography of what were called half-breed Indians, lest people should imagine their greatness was due to the infusion of the blood of the superior white race. But the story of Quanah Parker is so interesting, and he has such a remarkable personality in so many ways, that we have decided to make an exception in his case. Then, too, as will be seen, his mother, Cynthia Ann Parker, at the time of his birth, was to all intents and purposes an Indian, though born of white parents. It is said on good authority that the Apaches and Comanches are related through intermarriage and ancestry, and at one point formed a single tribe. During a scarcity of food, these people were divided into the mountain tribes, who pledged their word and honor to their brothers, who lived on the fish and waterfowl and swine, that they would never eat the fish from the streams, nor the fowls from the waters, nor the hogs from the mud. Their bottomland brothers were to abstain from the game of the mountains and plains. This treaty, made in the time of famine, was sacredly kept in the days of plenty, and ever afterward those highland Indians refused to eat pork, fish, or waterfowl. The best account of Cynthia Ann Parker and her famous son, Quana is found in White's Experiences of an Indian Agent. In it, he quotes an article from General Alford on the White Comanche, in which the general says, and I quote, Amongst numerous illustrations of heroism which illuminate the pages of Texas history, perhaps none shines with a brighter halo than the capture of Fort Parker. In 1833, a small colony formed in Illinois moved to the then Mexican province of Texas and settled in a beautiful and fertile region of the Navasota River about two miles from the present city of Grosbeek, the county seat of Limestone County. The colony consisted of nine families, in all 34 persons, of which Elder John Parker was the patriarchal head. They erected a blockhouse, which was known as Fort Parker, for protection against the assaults of hostile Indians. This structure was made of solid logs, closely knit together and hewn down so as to make a compact, perfect square, without opening of any kind until it reached the height of 10 or 12 feet, where the structure widened on the side, forming a projection impossible to climb. The lower story, reached by an interior ladder, was used as a place of storage for provisions. The upper story was divided into two large rooms with portholes for the use of guns. 
These rooms were also the living rooms, and reached only by a ladder from the outside, which was pulled up at night after the occupants had ascended, making a safe fortification against any reasonable force, unless assailed by fire. These hardy sons of toil tilled their adjacent fields by day, always taking their arms with them, and retired to the fort at night. Success crowned their labors, and they were prosperous and happy. On the morning of May 18, 1836, the men left, as usual, for their fields, a mile distant. Scarcely had they left the enclosure when the fort was attacked by about 700 Comanches and Kiowas, who were waiting in ambush. A gallant and most resolute defense was made, many Indians being sent to their happy hunting grounds. But it was impossible to stem the terrible assault, and Fort Parker fell. Then began the carnival of death. Elder John Parker, Silas Parker, Ben Parker, Sam Frost, and Robert Frost were killed and scalped in the presence of their horror-stricken families. Mrs. John Parker, Granny Parker, and Mrs. Duty were dangerously wounded and left for dead, and the following were carried into a captivity worse than death. Mrs. Rachel Plummer, James Pratt Plummer, her two-year-old son, Mrs. Elizabeth Kellogg, Cynthia Ann Parker, nine years old, and her little brother John, age six, both children of Silas Parker. The remainder of the party made their escape, and after incredible suffering, being forced even to the dire necessity of eating skunks to save their lives, they reached Fort Houston, now the residence of Honorable John Reagan, about three miles from the present city of Palestine, in Anderson County, where they obtained prompt succor and a relief party buried their dead. Cynthia Ann Parker and her little brother, John, were held by separate bands. John grew up to an athletic young manhood, married a beautiful, night-eyed young Mexican captive, Donna Juanita Espinosa, escaped from the Indians, or was released by them, joined the Confederate Army under General H.P.B., became noted for his gallantry and daring, and at last accounts was leading a happy, contented pastoral life as a ranchero in the western Llanos Tecado, the staked plains of Texas. Four long and anxious years had passed since Cynthia Ann was taken from her weeping mother's arms, during which time no tidings had been received by her anxious family. When, in 1840, an old and honored Texan, Mr. Stout, a trader, and Jack Harry, a Delaware Indian guide, packed mules with goods and engaged in an expedition of private traffic with the Indians. On the Canadian River, they fell in with Pahauka's band of Comanches, with whom they were on peaceable terms. Cynthia Ann was with this tribe, and from the day of her capture had never beheld a white person. Colonel Williams proposed to redeem her from the old Comanche who held her in bondage, but the fierceness of his countenance warned him of the danger of further mentioning the subject. Pahauka, however, reluctantly permitted her to sit at the foot of a tree, and while the presence of the white men was doubtless a happy event to the poor stricken captive, who in her doleful captivity had endured everything but death, she refused to speak one word. As she sat there, musing perhaps of distant relatives and friends, and her bereavement at the beginning and progress of her distress, 
They employed every persuasive art to evoke from her some expression of her feelings. They told her of her relatives and her playmates and asked what message of love she would send them. But she had been commanded to silence and with no hope of release was afraid to appear sad or dejected and by a stoical effort controlled her emotions lest the terrors of her captivity should be increased. But the anxiety of her mind was betrayed by the quiver of her lips, showing that she was not insensible to the common feelings of humanity. As the years rolled by, Cynthia Ann developed the charms of captivating womanhood, and the heart of more than one dusky warrior was pierced by the Elysian darts of her laughing eyes and the ripple of her silvery voice, and laid at her feet the trophies of the chase. Among the number whom her budding charms brought to her shrine was Pita Nakona, a redoubtable young Comanche war chief, in prowess and renown the peer of the famous Bigfoot, who fell in a desperate hand-to-hand combat with the famous Indian fighter, Captain Shapely Ross of Waco. Cynthia Ann, stranger now to every word of her mother tongue, save only her childhood name, became the bride of the brown warrior Pita Nakona bore him three children, and loved him with a fierce passion and wifely devotion, evinced by the fact that fifteen years after her capture, a party of hunters, including friends of her family, visited the Comanche encampment on the Upper Canadian River, and, recognizing Cynthia Ann through the medium of her name, endeavored to induce her to return to her kindred and the abode of civilization. She shook her head in a sorrowful negative, and pointing to her little naked children sporting at her feet and the great lazy chief sleeping in the shade nearby, the locks of a score of fresh scalps dangling at his belt, replied, I am happily wedded. I love my husband and my little ones, who are his, too, and I cannot forsake them. The account of the death of Peter Nakona and the recapture of Cynthia Ann Parker is told in a letter by Governor Ross to General George Alford. Quote, to my surprise, I found myself within 200 yards of a large Comanche village located on a small winding stream around the base of a hill. In making disposition for the attack, the sergeant and his 20 men were sent at a gallop behind the chain of sand hills to cut off their retreat, while with my 40 men, I charged. The attack was so sudden that a large number were killed before they could prepare for defense. They fled precipitously, right into the arms of the sergeant and his twenty. Here they met with a warm reception, and finding themselves completely encompassed, every one fled his own way and was hotly pursued and hard-pressed. The chief, a warrior of great repute named Pita Nakona, with an Indian girl about fifteen years of age mounted on his horse behind him, and Cynthia Ann Parker, his wife, with a girl child about two years old in her arms, and mounted on a fleet young pony, fled together. Lieutenant Tom Kelleher and I pursued them, and after running about a mile, Kelleher ran up by the side of Cynthia Ann's horse, and supposing her to be a man, was in the act of shooting her when she held up her child and stopped. I kept on alone at the top of my horse's speed after the chief, and about a half a mile further, when in about twenty yards from him, I fired my pistol, striking the girl, whom I supposed to be a man, as she rode like one, and only her head was visible above the buffalo robe in which she was wrapped. 
My bullet struck her near the heart, killing her instantly. And the same ball would have killed both, but for the shield of the chief which hung down, covering his back. When the girl fell from the horse, dead, she pulled off the chief also. But he caught on his feet, and before steadying himself, my horse, running at full speed, was nearly upon him. When he sped an arrow, which struck my horse and caused him to pitch or buck, and it was with the greatest difficulty that I could keep my saddle. Meantime, narrowly escaping several arrows coming in quick succession from the chief's bow. Being at such a disadvantage, he undoubtedly would have killed me, but for a random shot from my pistol while I was clinging with my left hand to the pommel of my saddle, which broke his right arm at the elbow, completely disabling him. My horse then becoming more quiet, I shot the chief twice through the body, whereupon he deliberately walked to a small tree nearby, the only one in sight, and leaning against it with one arm for support, began to sing a wild song, the death song of the Comanche. There was a plaintive melody in it which, under the dramatic circumstances, filled my heart with sorrow. At this time, my Mexican aide, who had once been a captive of the Comanches and spoke their language as fluently as his mother tongue, came up in the company with others of my men. Through him, I summoned the chief to surrender, but he promptly treated every overture with contempt and emphasized his refusal with a savage attempt to thrust me through with his lance, which he still held in his left hand. I could only look upon him with pity and admiration, for, deplorable as was his situation, with no possible chance of escape, his band utterly destroyed, his wife and children captives in his sight, he was undaunted by the fate that awaited him, and he preferred death to life. I directed the Mexican to end his misery by a charge of buckshot from the gun which he carried, and the brave Comanche, who had been so long the scourge and terror of the Texas frontier, passed into the land of the shadows and rested with his fathers. We rode back to the captive woman, whose identity was then unknown, and found Lieutenant Kelleher, who was guarding her and her child, bitterly reproaching himself for having run his pet horse so hard after an old woman. She was very dirty and far from attractive in her scanty garments, as well as her person. As I looked her in the face, I said, Why, Tom, this is a white woman. Indians do not have blue eyes. When camped for the night, Cynthia Ann, our then unknown captive, kept crying and thinking it was caused by the fear of death at our hands. I had the Mexican tell her in the Comanche language that we recognized her as one of our people and would not harm her. She replied that two of her sons, in addition to the infant daughter, were with her when the fight began and she was distressed by the fear that they had been killed. It so happened, however, that both escaped and one of them, Quana, is now the chief of the Comanche tribe and the beautiful city of Quana, now the county seat of Hardeman County, is named in his honor. The other son died some years ago on the plains. Through my interpreter, I then asked her to give me the history of her life with the Indians and the circumstances attending her capture by them, which she promptly did in a very intelligent manner. And as the facts detailed by her corresponded with the massacre at Parker's Fort in 1836, I was impressed with the belief that she was Cynthia Ann Parker. End quote. The letter is then signed by then-Governor L.S. Ross. A few more incidents of her subsequent life are told by General Alford. Said he, and I quote, 
Cynthia Ann and her infant child were taken to Austin, the capital of the state. In session was the state convention regarding secession from the Union. She was taken to the magnificent state house where this august body was holding grave discussions as to the policy of withdrawing from the Union. Comprehending not one word of her mother tongue, she concluded it was a council of mighty chiefs assembled for the trial of her life, and in great alarm tried to make her escape. Her brother, Colonel Dan Parker, who resided near Parker's Bluff in Anderson County, was a member of the legislature from that county, who then represented the 11th Senatorial District. Colonel Parker took his unhappy sister to his comfortable home and essayed by the kind of offices of tenderness and affection to restore her to the comforts and enjoyments of civilized life, to which she had so long been a stranger. But as thorough an Indian in manner and looks as if she had been a native-born, she sought every opportunity to escape and rejoin her dusky companions, and had to be constantly and closely watched. The civil strife then being waged between the North and the South, between fathers, sons, and brothers, necessitated the primitive arts of spinning and weaving, in which she soon became adept, and gradually her mother tongue came back, and with it occasional incidents of her childhood. But the ruling passion of her bosom seemed to be the maternal instinct, and she cherished the hope that when the cruel war was over, she would at least succeed in reclaiming her two sons, who were still with the Comanches. But the great spirit had written otherwise, and Cynthia Ann and Little Prairie Flower were called in 1864 to the spirit land and peacefully sleep side by side under the great oak trees on her brother's plantation near Palestine. Thus ends the sad story of a woman whose stormy life, darkened by an eternal shadow, made her far-famed throughout the borders of the imperial Lone Star State. Cynthia Ann's son had been, for some years, the popular hereditary chief of the once powerful confederacy of Comanche Indians which, though greatly decimated by war and the enervating influences of semi-civilization, is still one of the most numerous tribes in the United States. He is intelligent and wealthy. In personal appearance, he is tall, muscular, and graceful in his movements. He is a friend of the white man and rules his tribe with firmness, moderation, and wisdom. He is located on his picturesque reservation in Oklahoma, not many miles distant from the city of Quana, so named in his honor. A few years since I met the chief in Wichita Falls, and when informed that I had personally known his pale-faced mother, Cynthia Ann, he had a thousand questions to ask about her personal appearance, size, shape, form, weight, color of her eyes, color of her hair, etc. He gave me a cordial invitation to visit him at his teepee or wigwam near Fort Sill, profusely promising all the fish, game, ponies, and ladies I desired. End quote. Thus concluding General Alford's statements. General Alford's statement that Quana is the hereditary chief is incorrect. It is true he is the son of Chief Pita Nakona, but it by no means follows that the son of a chief will succeed to the chieftaincy by divine right of inheritance. The son of a common warrior, if he possesses the elements of leadership, force of character, eloquence in counsel, and general ability, will stand a much better show of becoming a chief 
than the son of a chief lacking these essentials. Fortunately, we know how Quanah Parker became chief. He told part of his story to the author of this book and the entire account to E.E. E. White, the special Indian agent. As the story is very romantic and interesting, we will give it in full. Said Mr. White, quote, By the death of his father and the recapture of his mother, Quanah was left an orphan at an age which could not have been more than 12 years. The same disaster that reduced him to orphanage also made him a pauper. Although the son of a deceased chief, now having no parents, no home, and no fortune, he became not the ruler of his tribe, but a waif of the camp. But being self-reliant, an expert archer, a successful hunter for one of his age, good-natured and intelligent, he made friends, among the boys of the tribe at least, and found whereon to lay his head and plenty to eat and wear. And while orphanage and poverty entailed sorrow and suffering upon the young man, it was happily contrary to nature for those sad misfortunes to divest him of the divine right to love and be loved. And although he was half Indian by blood and a complete one by habit and association, abundant proof that he was not devoid of the finer instincts of humanity is found in the ardent and constant love which he has always borne his first wife. Wakia, and the strong and undying affection and sympathy that he has always exhibited for his most unhappy mother. It is said that his first question upon surrendering the tribe to General Mackenzie in 1876 was concerning her, and that his first request was for permission to go see her, her death not then being known either to himself or the general. Proof of his captive mother's love for him and the sentiment of her nature are shown in the name she bestowed upon him, Quana, its meaning in the Comanche language being fragrance. I was one day on the prairie of a large party of Comanches. We stopped at a spring for water, and the chiefs Tabanaka and White Wolf, the Jonathan and David of the tribe, walked down the branch a short distance and gathered a large handful of wild mint. Holding it to my nose, White Wolf said, Quana, Quana, you take it. I said, Sweet smell, is that Quana? They replied, Yes, Quana, heap good smell. Then, plucking a bunch of wildflowers, they inhaled their fragrance to show me what they meant. Then, handing them to me, said, Quana, Quana, heap Quana, good smell. Quana's best friend and most constant playmate in his orphanage was Wakia, Chief Yellow Bear's daughter. They rode her father's ponies to the water holes, played through the camps together, and were inseparable. He shot antelope and other game for her amusement, and she learned to bead his moccasins and ornament his bow quiver. The years went by, and Quana and Wakia were no longer papooses. They were in the very bloom of young manhood and womanhood, and each in form and feature without flaw or blemish. But they did not know that they loved each other. There were other young men in the village, however, and one day one of them, gaudily painted and bedecked with beads and small mirrors, came near Yellow Bear's teepee, blowing his reed flutes. Three days later he came again, 
and nearer than before. Only two days passed until he came a third time, spreading his blanket on the grass in front of Yellow Bear's teepee and seating himself on it. He looked straight at the doorway and played softly all the love songs of the tribe. Wakia showed not her face to the wooer. Her heart was throbbing violently with a sensation that had never thrilled her before, but it was not responsive to the notes of the flutes. Nor had Quana been unobservant, and there were strange and violent pulsations through his veins also. It was the first time he had ever seen the arts of the lover attempted to be employed on Wakia. Instantly, his very soul was aflame with love for her. There was just one hot, ecstatic, overpowering flush of love. And then there came into his heart the chilling, agonizing thought that this wooing might be by Wakia's favor or encouragement. Then a very tempest of contending emotions raged in his breast. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. When the sun's rays began to slant to the earth, there came to Yellow Bear's teepee a rich old chief by the name of Ekitoakup, who had been, when a young man, the rival of Pita Nakona for the heart and hand of the beautiful white Comanche, Cynthia Ann Parker. Ekitoakup and Yellow Bear sat down together on buffalo robes under the brush wickiup in front of the teepee. They smoked their pipes leisurely and talked a long time, not in whispers, but very slow and in low tones. When Quana and Wakia met that evening, it was with feelings never experienced before by either of them. Wakia was greatly agitated. She fluttered like a bird, and kneeling at Quana's feet, she locked her arms around his knees and looked up in his face and begged him to save her. The lover with the flutes was Tanap, the only son of rich old Ekitoakup. Wakia abhorred him, and his father had offered Yellow Bear ten ponies for her. Yellow Bear loved his daughter, and notwithstanding it was the tribal custom, he was loath to sell her against her will. He had given Ekitoakup no answer for the present, and Wakia implored Quana to get ten ponies and take her himself. Quana was filled with deepest pity for Wakia and alarmed at the prospect of losing her, for he owned only one pony, and Tanap's father owned a hundred. After telling Wakia to be brave and note everything said and done in her sight and hearing, Quana tore away from her and, gathering all of his young friends together, explained his situation to them. They loved him and hated Tanap but calamities and war had made them all poor like himself. They separated to meet again in secret, with others next morning. During the day, nine ponies were tendered to him, which, with the one he owned, made ten. These Quana accepted on condition that others should be received in exchange for them whenever he could get them, which he was ambitious and hopeful enough to believe he could do some day. Driving these ponies with the haste of an anxious lover to Yellow Bear's teepee, Quana there met old Ekitoakup, who greeted him with a taunting chuckle of exultation and a look of wicked revenge. 
His spies, having informed him of the action of Quanah's friends, had raised his bid to twenty ponies. This being an exceptionally liberal offer, Yellow Bear had promptly accepted it, and now the jealous and unforgiving old savage was exulting in his triumph over the poor but knightly rival of his arrogant and despised son, and gloating in his revenge upon the valiant and rising son of his own late successful and hated rival. Entering the teepee, Quanta found Wakia prostrated at her father's feet in deepest distress. In two sleeps, Tanap would bring twenty ponies and claim his prize. Wakia was heartbroken, and Quanta was desperate. He hurried back for another consultation with his friends, but not to ask for more ponies. It was to submit a new and startling proposition to them, to tell them of a new thought that had come to him, a new resolution that had taken possession of his very soul. Though he himself did not suspect it, the star of a new chief was about to rise above the horizon. The new scheme promising spoils and adventure, as well as triumph over a hated rival, Quanta's zealous young friends agreed to it with an enthusiasm which they could hardly avoid showing in their faces and actions. The unhappy lovers stole another brief twilight meeting in the shadows of Yellow Bear's teepee. Wakia's quick eyes noted, with increasing admiration and confidence, that the past two days had marked a great change in Quanta. He was now no longer a boy. He seemed to have grown taller, and was more serious and thoughtful, and spoke with an evident courage and consciousness of strength which gave her great hope and comfort. He told her that their only hope was in flight, and, as she knew, according to the inexorable law of the tribe, that meant certain death to him, and at least the delivery of herself to Tanip and possibly death to herself also, if they should be overtaken. Wakia, instead of being deterred by the hazards of the attempt at elopement, was eager to go, for in that step she could see the possibility of a life of happiness, and an escape from a fate which, in her detestation of Tanip, she regarded as even worse than death. Just at moondown the next night, which, from the description given me, I suppose was about eleven o'clock, Quana and one of his friends met Wakia at the door of her father's teepee and conducted her to the edge of the camp, where their horses and twenty-one other young men were waiting. Then began the most remarkable elopement, and in some respects at least the most remarkable ride ever known on the plains among either whites or Indians. Quana took the lead with Wakia next behind him, and the twenty-two young men following in a single file. For seven hours they did not break a lope, except to water their ponies in crossing streams. At daylight they stopped to graze their ponies and made a repast on dried buffalo meat. Here Wakia saw with pride and increasing confidence that many of those twenty-two tall, sinewy young men carried guns, and all of them revolvers, shields, bows, and quivers full of arrows and were mounted and equipped throughout as a select war party. Stopping only a few hours, they changed their course, separated and came together again at a designated place at sunset. There they stopped again until moondown, and then, resuming their journey, traveled together all night. They were now in Texas, and dared not travel any more in daylight. 
When night came on, they changed their course again, separated into couples, and traveled that way several nights, coming together at a place which, from the description, I think probably was Double Mountain in Scurry County, Texas. There they stopped several days to recruit their ponies, subsisting themselves on game, which then abounded in that region. From that place they traveled in couples from high point to high point until they came to a river, which I suppose from their description was one of the main branches of the Concho. And there they established their rendezvous, and, as Quana expressed it, went to steal in hosses. It has been said, indeed, I believe it has been universally conceded, that the Comanches, before their subjugation, were the finest horse thieves the world ever saw. Whether this has been conceded or not, I am sure no one who knew them will deny that it was a well-deserved compliment. And I doubt not that Quana and his bridal party contributed greatly to the weaving of that wreath of legend. Ekatoa Cup's band being utterly unable to follow the trail, the fugitives remained undiscovered in that region for more than a year, and in Quana's own candid and comprehensive language, just stole hosses all over Texas. In a few months, they had a large herd, including many valuable American horses and mules. But it was not long until the young man began to sigh for the girls they had left behind and to venture back a few at a time to see them, and always with praise of their chief and glowing accounts of the magnitude and profits of their business. They invariably returned with their sweethearts and many other Indians of both sexes also. With Quana's encouragement, their visits became frequent, and at the end of the year, his band numbered several hundred. But through these visits, old Ekatoakup had heard of the fugitive and was now coming with a large war party to punish him and take Wakia. Wakia again became badly frightened. She would get behind Quana from the direction of Tanup's approach, clasp her arms around him, and beg him not to give her up. But her entreaties were wholly unnecessary. Quana, of his own accord, was ready to die rather than suffer her to be taken from him. Ekatoakup found Quana's band posted for battle. He was astounded at their numbers and became so alarmed for his own safety that he was glad to agree to an offer of compromise. Rather than risk the hazard of battle, four chiefs were sent from each side to meet halfway between the two bands and arrange the compromise. After a great deal of smoking and haggling, Ekatoakup's men proposed to accept 19 horses, the pick of Quana's herd, in full satisfaction of all demands. Quana promptly approved the agreement with the cheerful and significant observation that he knew a ranch where he could get 19 others just as good in a few hours. This gave Quana the right to return to the tribe, and as the Texans had him pretty well located in that rendezvous and were becoming quite impudent and inhospitable to him, and his band was now too large to be longer concealed anywhere in the state, he followed close after Ekatoakup, continuing in the territory to receive accessions from other bands, including Ekatoakups. He soon became the acknowledged chief of the tribe, and as a war chief, before being overpowered and conquered, he had achieved great renown for prowess, enterprise, sagacity, and true military genius. 
His sway, perhaps, never being greater, or even as great, as it is at this present day. He lives in a picturesque valley on the south side of the Wichita Mountains, where he owns a good home, a hundred horses, perhaps a thousand cattle, and has 250 acres of land in cultivation, though I doubt if he has ever plowed a furrow himself, or would do it if he could. Wakia presides over his household, happy and contented, proud of her husband, with immunity from burdensome duties, and provided with all the comforts and luxuries befitting her station in life. But there is a good deal of Brigham Young, or the Sultan of Turkey, in that untutored Comanche, and instead of Wakia being his only wife, she is merely one of a harem of five. His devotion to her, which has always been constant and unquestioned, not precluding him from the polygamous custom of the tribe. It must be said to his credit, however, that Wakia is still his favorite. This is quite evident to those who see much of them, and on one occasion, when something was said of the possibility of the government arbitrarily divorcing all Indians from their plural wives, I asked him which of his he would choose to retain if that were done. Without a moment's hesitation, he said, Wakia. I was living in Oklahoma in the spring of 1905, employed in preparing the manuscript of this book. As I needed a good sketch of Quanah Parker in order to complete my lives of famous Indian chiefs, I decided to go and interview him and get my information at first hands and authentic. Arriving at Lawton, I was informed that Quanah Parker was at Cash, a small town in Comanche County, 12 miles distant. I immediately boarded the Frisco train and in due time found myself at Cash, which is located at the foot of the Wichita Mountains. I found the chief in his buggy, just starting out of town and seemingly in a hurry, but when I introduced myself and stated my business, he alighted from the buggy and expressed himself as willing to talk. Though a half-breed, Quanah Parker has every appearance of a typical Indian, being tall, straight, athletic, and as dark as the full-bloods of his tribe. He rules his people with wisdom and moderation by sheer force of character and is very popular with both white and red neighbors. He is quite wealthy and ambitious withal to represent the new state shortly to be formed of the two territories in the United States Senate. He argues that a large percentage of the population of the new state will be of his own race, who will also be affected by many of the laws to be enacted. Therefore, there should be an Indian in the United States Senate, or it would be another case of taxation without representation. As the population of the new state will be of both races, so a logical representative in the Senate should belong to both races, all of which clearly means Chief Parker and he is perfectly willing to serve his people in that august body when the time comes. And indeed, the new state might hunt further for senatorial timber and fare worse. Only in case of his election, he would likely be refused a seat on the ground of being a polygamist. He prides himself on being a personal friend of President Roosevelt, and was one of the six chiefs who were in the parade at the time of the inauguration last March the others being Little Plume of the Blackfoot Tribe, American Horse and Hollow Horn Bear of the Sioux, Geronimo of the Apache, and Buckskin Charlie of the Utes. When we were seated in the shade, the chief said, 
What do you want to talk about? The chief was easily understood, but spoke somewhat broken and in a manner peculiar to the Indian. We will try to give his exact language. How about the president's wolf hunt in the big prairie, we asked. It's like this, he answered. President came along in his special car. It stopped. President stood on platform of car, fixed glasses on his nose. Look all over crowd. I standing back good way among engines. President see me, motion first with one hand, then two hands, like this, but I no go. I asked in astonishment, why you no go when the president motioned for you to come? How I know he mean me. Plenty engines in crowd, other chiefs around. Might mean other chiefs, so I no go at first. Then he sent messenger after me, messenger say, President Roosevelt want to see Chief Quanah Parker at car. Then I know he mean me, and I follow the messenger to the car. We elbow our way through crowd like this, and this, showing me how it was done. President reach out over heads of people and grip my hand, so. He then give me big pull right up steps side him. Shook my hand, maybe so, like pump handle, and pat me on back with other hand. He made a little speech and say, This is my friend, Chief Quanah Parker. I met him in Washington City. He friend to white and father to red man, entitled to respect and honor of both. Then people in crowd around cars shout out, Two big chiefs, big white chief, big red chief, both good men and good friends. And they do like this, clapping of hands, long time. President say, won't you go hunting with me in Big Prairie and stay weak and show us where to find the wolves? I went with him, stayed five days, took tent, camping and cooking outfit, and some of my men and my family, or some of my family, had good time, killed plenty wolves. Continuing, the chief said, President Roosevelt, him all right, him different from McKinley in Cleveland. They way up in the air, standing on their dignity, but him down here on level with the people, him Injun's president. Also, as white man's president. Him all kinds of man. When he come with cowboys, he cowboy. When he with rough riders, he roughest rider of all. When he with statesmen, he statesman. And when he with Indians, he just like Injun. All same, he white Injun. We personal friends. I talk to him and use influence with him for pardon Geronimo. I got message for Geronimo, but I no tell you, tell him first. Then you will be going to Fort Sill in a few days to deliver the president's message, I ventured to remark. But the reply was, no, no, I much heap big chief, he come see me. I told him I realized that fact, and intended to give him a good mention in my Indian history I was just completing, and asked him if he could furnish me a late photograph to enable me to have a good cut made for the book. He said that he and Geronimo had some pictures taken together in Washington City and added, they no come yet. Maybe so, they come tomorrow, maybe next week. When they come, I send you one. The chief kept his word, and some time afterward, I got a photograph from him.
It was hard to realize as I saw the good-natured-looking Comanche Indians loafing or trading in some of the stores of the enterprising little town of Cash that only a few years ago some of those warriors had doubtless made night hideous with their dreaded war-whoop, which is said to resemble the rah-rah of the college boys. Quanah Parker is really a great man and a born ruler. He seems to combine the shrewdness and stoicism of the Indian with the intelligence and diplomacy of the white race. He manages to conciliate that element of his tribe which hates the whites and doggedly opposes all innovations while vigorously advocating progress. When the lands were allotted to the Comanches, he advised them to choose good farming lands and become peaceable, industrious citizens of the United States. They took his advice and chose lands close to their chief, thus forming a Comanche settlement and a village which is beautiful for situation at the base of the picturesque Wichita Mountains, about 18 miles from the military post of Fort Sill. About two and a half miles from Cache, on the south side of one of the Wichita Mountains, stands Quanah's home, known as the White House of the Comanches. It is quite an imposing square, two-story frame building, with wide galleries running entirely around it. It gleams startlingly white and tall against the blue of the sky and the vivid green of the prairie, and presents a striking contrast to the somber gray and brown of the mountainside, which forms a background. Built in the days when lumber had to be hauled hundreds of miles over the rough prairie trails, it cost at least double what it would today. It is said to contain 30 rooms and is furnished with all the comforts and many of the luxuries of civilization. Over the organ in his parlor hangs a life-sized oil painting of his white mother, to which the chief proudly calls the attention of all his visitors. For many years, his was the only house on the reservation, and it became an object of wonder to the Indians and of interest to the white visitors. The shrewd chief is a good financier and looks after his own interests closely, owning large droves of cattle and at least a hundred ponies and controlling thousands of acres of land, the allotments of his wives and children. Today, there are three ladies of the White House, Tuanuk, Tupay, and two Nisi. They have separate apartments, and each has her own sewing machine, of which she is as proud as a small boy with a new toy. Quana not only belongs to the two races, but is somewhat dual-natured. In appearance, as we have stated, he is decidedly more Indian than white. And when he is with the full-bloods, the moccasins, buckskin leggings, gaudy blanket, and eagle-plume headdress or war bonnet adorn his stalwart person. But when mingling with his white friends, he adopts the garb of civilization, cutaway coat, stiffly laundered linen, and soft felt hat. To Nicee, his youngest wife, accompanies him on his trips abroad, when she, too, dresses like all the white ladies at the agency, and poses as Mrs. Quana Parker driving with the chief in his handsome turnout behind his team of prize-winning sorrels that even a Kentuckian might admire. Quana has a large family of children and is giving all of them good educational advantages at the mission schools on the reservation, the large school at Chiloco, Oklahoma, and at Carlisle, Pennsylvania. We met one of his sons, Baldwin, who is a sprightly and handsome youth of about 17 the day we spent at Cash, 
and from him derived much of the information contained in this chapter. He has also a beautiful and accomplished daughter, Needle Parker, whose sad, sweet face resembles somewhat of the portrait of her grandmother. She also brings to mind one of the night-eyed Castilian beauties of old Mexico, whose blood mingles with and tinges the life current of the Comanche Indians. And with that, we conclude our reading of Quana Parker, head chief of the Comanches. Thanks for listening. And as always, subscribe, like, rate, and review. Speaking of reviews, we got a new one from JMSKUTTJMSCUT11 from Haas Brown. Love the podcast, well read and researched, and so excited to lead and learn new things. Thank you so much. Have you researched Commodore Perry Owens or any stuff about Northern Arizona like Prescott, etc.? Uh, no, we have not, but uh, we're rolling into some of that stuff. I just took a trip to Sedona in January. Kind of feel like Sedona is the love child of Moab and Santa Fe. Um, look forward to uh, learning more about the region. We went through Prescott, and it was a just a fantastic place over Mangus Mountain and all that, down through Jerome. Um, very exciting, very cool stuff, and I can't wait to find out the history and share it with you. Meanwhile, back at the ranch... Give us some five-star ratings. We need them. All right. And uh, check us out on Patreon and support John's other podcast, particularly 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales and 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. All right, man. Um, we appreciate you paying attention, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story.